0: I know, I know. This is the second week of our four-week series on the Ten Commandments, and you saw that sermon title, and you thought, Pastor David's finally lost it. That makes no sense, because Christians, by definition, aren't atheists. Well, from time to time, Roman emperors and magistrates thought differently. Early Christians became notorious for their refusal to participate and sacrifices to the traditional gods. Now, being part of a secular society today, we might think this was no big deal, but it was a big deal for them. Daily life was steeped in the religious. If you were a member of a guild, say, of fishers, bakers, silversmiths, or masons, you would have to reverence the guild's patron deity at meetings. Your livelihood might depend on it. Social occasions acknowledged a god or gods. Households had patron gods, as did cities and the empire at large. Refusal to participate in traditional sacrificial rites had, at the least, social and financial consequences. Christians were sometimes labeled subversive and antisocial because they labeled idolatry what the empire called piety. We might do well to reclaim some of this rigorous early Christian atheism. The refusal to give ultimate allegiance or devotion to any one thing, cause, or concern other than the true God. Because there are a lot of idols out there clamoring for first place in our lives. And God knew it at Sinai. Only three months before the Israelites had been liberated from... They were experiencing life as a free people after oppression and forced labor by Pharaoh, who claimed to be a god himself. Freedom was scary, though. Although God led them through Moses and Aaron, it wasn't like the way Pharaoh exercised dominance. It wasn't Pharaoh's system. God didn't micromanage every minute of every day for the Israelites. God also didn't immediately satisfy every desire that they had. They didn't leave Egypt on a red carpet. So that led to a lot of anxiety about God's character. The anxiety boils over in Exodus 17 when the people stressed by lack of water, quote, quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? God lets them know at Sinai that God is among them. God gives them rules for living, rules for living as a free people. This lets them know that God is always among them in God's word. Last week we saw that grace came first, that before God makes any, any demands of allegiance or obedience, God first tells them that they are his chosen people, Claim for himself. That he led them out of of Egypt. God saved them without them having to do anything. Now we see that the law is an act of mercy, giving clear boundaries for how the people are to relate to God. The first commandment is an act of liberation. God says, You shall have no other gods before me. That means nothing else comes first not even good and worthy things, people or causes. Think of some of the things we worship. I had a professor who called the Mall of America the biggest church in America. Hundreds of worshipers there every Sunday, ready to offer their tithes to the gods of the marketplace. And while we might not be in the Mall at the Mall of America, seeing as it's like four hours away, three hours away, We certainly are lured by the gods of the marketplace. It's a preferred idol. But it isn't the only one. People worship all kinds of stuff. It could be things like money, power, validation, or physical beauty. It could be one's status in life, one's own level of personal comfort, or a particular standard of the good life. It could be the state, a political party, an ideology or a politician. It could even be one's own family members, friends, or expectations in such relationships. And over the last three years, I've learned about the dangers of idolizing one's own child. (laughs) Very few of us are prone to worship other literal gods than God alone. But we are prone to creating idols in which we put our trust. As Luther wrote in his large catechism, anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. The first commandment puts things in their proper place, as do the second and third commandments. The second commandment is much more than just uttering the name of God carelessly, although it is about that too. It's, the Hebrew literally says, raise for nothing. It also forbids us from using God's name as a buttress for our opinions or ideologies. And in America, if I may say so, there is a lot of use of God's name as a support for an ideological or a political position. The second commandment reminds us to be humble, to be very careful about the causes we invoke God's name for remember that all of us sit under God's just judgments. All of us sit under God's just judgments. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, regardless of our opinion. There is no God is on our side when it comes to the second commandment. Third commandment, remembering the Sabbath, is a little different for us than it is for the Jews, but the point is the same. We might not keep the literal Sabbath, Saturday, but this commandment reminds us that time, that work and rest have their proper place. We can't keep running around 24 7 not taking time for rest, not taking time to hear God's word, and expect to be healthy. Taking Sabbath time whenever it is for you to rest and to hear God's word is just as essential as it is countercultural. The marketplace. For example, demands 24-7 access to our lives and to our wallets. Various activities demand unlimited access to our children's time. The third commandment is the divine no to these demands that overstep. Instead, it's an invitation to freedom, to live a different kind of life with work and rest in proper balance, a life lived with things in their proper place, Of course, depending on where you live, or who you are, or where you are in life, that's not always possible. And it's one of the the reasons this commandment, as do the other two, rub against modern society. The single mom working three jobs to make ends meet is going to have a hard time finding Sabbath rest. Which just reminds us that these commandments aren't just about us individually. They're about us societally, communally. They're about life together. Just as much as belief, these first three commandments invite us to practice a holy unbelief, an unbelief, an atheism that is liberating. All other gods and idols are to be denied allegiance or obedience. All other claims on our personhood and our time, even those that are legitimate, and there are legitimate claims that others have on us, are to be put in their proper place. You might remember a few weeks ago, I mentioned how my pastor had a cross-stitch given to him in his first call and said, Jim, remember first you are a Christian, a child of God. Second, you are a husband. Third, you are a father. Fourth, you are a son. Fifth, you are a pastor. Pastors at number five. Things in their proper place. All these other claims are in their place. So instead, we're privileged through our baptism to call the one true God our Father as Jesus did. We're privileged to know this God and Jesus Christ made human for us, and we are privileged to receive him in the sacrament every single Sunday when we hear the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And this we know that our sins are forgiven, and that we're given strength to live lives of faith, faith that is about God's liberating love. Liberated to worship God alone. Let's pray. God, our Father, help us to see these commandments as means of liberation from every idol that would make illegitimate demands on us. Help us to keep everything else in its proper place, even those good and worthy things, so that we may acknowledge and trust you as the one true God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.